we are live and we are recording in progress recording with dr kim biss and dr dan mcdyer on sunday march 12 2023 at 4 12 p.m eastern time as always and by as always i mean i've been saying it in the last week or so guys if you want to support the podcast there's a little red button on rumble press it you can go donate like a buck a month or something keep the show independent and as i said in the episode before this i had the worst panic attack of my life on friday and i'm still a little out of it so if anybody's wondering why i'm not the normal animated facts and figures guy i am it's because i still kind of half feel like death and uh, luckily for me i have two doctors here to uh, nurse me back to health so uh, because dr biss has been, i know because dr biss has been <laughs> Uh, because Dr. Biss has been on here before, uh, Dr. McDyer, could you please introduce yourself to all the listeners? Sure. I'm Dr. Dan McDyer. I'm an obstetrician gynecologist. I've been in private practice for 28, almost 29 years now. Um, I'm in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I've had quite a few leadership positions in medicine. I'm a clinical governance board member of the largest group of OBGYNs in the country um, for about the past 10 years now. I've been a section officer for the American College of OBGYNs. Um, and uh, I'm just uh, alert. I, uh, I'm an observer of patterns and I've been seeing some very concerning things over the past year and a half or two, just like Dr. Biss. And um, I'm not afraid to speak out just because I feel like it's, it's our obligation as physicians to keep our patients out of perilous situations. And you, know, you have to do that without concern for your, your own self-interests. Um, so that's that's why I'm here and why I'm willing to speak out, because I just believe in faith over fear and that we've got something to share with people that's going to protect them from significant harm, a flawed, a, a completely flawed system of medication. Awesome. And Dr. Biss, for the uh, for the new listeners, could you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Kimberly Biss, and I haven't been practicing as long as Dan, probably 24 years um, in St. Petersburg, Florida. And um, I haven't been on as many uh, committees as Dan has, but I have in my hospital. I have currently, <laughs> I know it's not a competition. I no. currently um, serve as uh, chief of staff at my hospital and I've been in that role since January of 2020. So you don't get to that unless you've been on a menagerie of hospital committees for many, many years. So. And we're the type of people who don't say no to anything. Probably that's why we, have those <laughs> positions we're willing to help all the time and uh luckily for me dan has show notes for the show so this actually couldn't be an easier podcast in terms of easing back into it is uh is have a little literal outline to uh to go by so just to start from the top um discussing why vaccine injuries occur like what is the me mechanism of act mechanism of action it's very easy to say there are vaccine injuries but what is actually going on yeah, I have a, a quick little slide presentation I could go through because I'm, I'm kind of a visual learner yeah. and really visual, and I think it might help your listeners and what, uh, viewers to see this. Let me see if I can share my screen here. Yeah, I just gave you sharing permission. Okay, let's see. All right, let's see from the beginning. There we go. Are you able to see my screen? Yes, sir. Okay, great. Yeah, so um, basically, you know, uh, a vaccine involves injection of some substance into the body. And with the uh, COVID injections, the COVID so-called vaccines, the genetic therapies, they're injected in the deltoid muscle in the shoulder. And the goal with this, uh, with this therapy was that it would stay in the shoulder 
get delivered, the substance would get delivered to the lymphatic system, and that's where the immune reactions would take place. Unfortunately, this is the first flaw in the entire system. I'm not really sure how they ever thought that was going to happen. Um, the, the reasoning they have is that they basically put an electrical charge on the lipid nanoparticles so they'd stay in a particular system of the body. But as we've seen, I think many of your viewers may be aware, this, this, <laughs> this didn't stay in the, in the shoulder muscle and go to the lymphatic system. It literally traveled everywhere. I'm sorry this is a little bit blurry. Um, I probably cropped it out of some paper I had or something like that. But this is just the biodistribution study from Pfizer's lipid nanoparticle system. And what it shows is that the lipid nanoparticles essentially travel to every system in the body and, and cross through every tissue barrier in the body, including the blood-brain barrier, the blood placental barrier, the blood testis barrier, the blood ovarian barrier. So there's, there's no tissue in the human body that is uh, uh, restricted from having effects from this vaccine, unfortunately. And the reason this happens, it just makes sense. The lipid nanoparticle delivery system was developed for genetic therapies. So when you when you perform a genetic therapy or, or want an outcome from that, literally every cell in the body has to be influenced by the genetic code that you're delivering to the system with the therapeutic in, in, inter, interjection. Um, so it goes everywhere. And this is why we're seeing such a broad spectrum of adverse outcomes from these vaccines because literally they go everywhere. And as you can see, they accumulate very rapidly in the ovaries. Essentially every tissue in the body through the first 48 hours or so has a, a an increasing accumulation of the lipid nanoparticle delivery system, except for the blood and plasma. And that's because it's exiting that arena and going into the tissues. So that that's what we're seeing here with this. And this, I mean, as I go through this, you'll understand why this entire platform, the messenger RNA vaccination platform is completely flawed. It will never work without causing injury. And, and, and I'm terrified the vaccine manufacturers are all talking about making all of their vaccines with a messenger RNA platform, which will just which will destroy the vaccine industry, which might not be a bad thing for what we're learning about vaccines at this point in time, historically. So maybe in order to understand how these vaccines actually work, I thought it might be really good to go quickly through the anatomy of a cell, because there are some terms that we use here as we'll be going through this. The important areas of the cellular anatomy are the um, cell membrane or the plasma membrane on the outside of the cell. It's what keeps everything inside the cell. It contains all of the organelles, all these internal systems of the cell are called the organelles. You have the nucleus of the cell, which is where the DNA or chromosomes are contained. The important areas inside the cell with the messenger RNA technology are the rough endoplasmic reticulum, which on the surface contain these little structures called ribosomes. They're, they're like the optical viewers that read the genetic message that's delivered to the cell by the lipid nanoparticles. And then the Golgi apparatus here, it basically takes what the ribosomes are making and delivers them through these Golgi bodies up to the cell surface or the, uh, the cell membrane, and then they plop right out into the circulation. So that's the anatomy of the cell. So what we have when we, when we deliver these vaccines, like we showed before with the biodistribution, oh, by the way, that biodistribution study was not publicly available. That required a FOIA request from the Japanese government to determine where this injection went. I'm shocked. They they actually went ahead and gave this to their population. But anyway, they, they demanded that first before they administered the vaccines. So here we have over on the left-hand side of the screen, a lipid nanoparticle merging with the, cyto, uh, the cell membrane of the cell. And it's delivering a messenger called the messenger RNA. 
That's just a genetic sequence that encodes for protein manufacturing. And on the front end of the messenger RNA uh, molecule is something called a nucleoside primer that slows the degradation of the messenger RNA. They added that there as they were engineering this messenger RNA um, strip. And on the end of it is something called a, a, a membrane anchor um, that encodes for a protein that keeps the spike protein that's manufactured by this ribosome in, embedded in the uh, cell membrane. So what happens is when the messenger RNA enter the cell, the ribosomes on the endoplasmic reticulum read that message, and they basically assemble a chain of amino acids which become a protein. And this particular messenger RNA encodes for the spike protein with a membrane anchor on the end of it. And what ends up happening is the Golgi apparatus then deliver the spike protein molecules up to the surface of the cell, the cell membrane, and then they stick off the surface kind of like a lollipop with the anchor membrane working, the membrane anchor working right here. Another thing that happens too is that there are segments of this spike protein that break down and are delivered to these other structures on the surface of the cell called the major histocompatibility complexes. They're kind of like the fingerprints of all the cells in your body. All the cells in the body have these little identifiers on the surface. And as we're maturing as embryos and fetuses, our immune system recognizes this imprint as being natural or belonging to the body so that it doesn't attack those things. If they're attacked, you actually end up with autoimmune disorders. So brief, uh, small little particles of the spike protein are delivered to the MHC complexes, and that activates what you hear about called the cellular immune system or the T cells. The B cells that make antibodies are activated by the, the spike proteins sticking up out of the cell surface known as the cell membrane. So this is where the immune response comes. This is a flawed system also from several perspectives. Number one, the membrane anchor didn't work. So the spike protein travels systemically throughout the body after the cell is making this protein. That was not meant to happen. And then also when a cell is expressing these types of foreign uh, proteins or foreign antigens, as we call them on the surface, the cell that contains those structures gets destroyed. So every cell that produces spike protein is, is subject to annihilation. That ends up with injury. And that's why we're seeing at least seven to 15, eight to 15% of people suffering some form of an adverse event from these vaccines. It's probably higher than that, but those are people that actually end up seeing a doctor or being hospitalized for adverse outcomes from the vaccine. Um, another very important thing to understand about this is that we have no idea how long this messenger RNA message lives in the cell of the uh, cells of the body. They did no pharmacokinetic studies. In other words, they didn't study how long your body would make spike protein. And I had a friend of mine who kind of argued with me a couple of weeks ago, actually kind of raised his voice to me in the elevator uh, area of the hospital, uh, telling me this is the safest vaccine ever, ever produced. It's the most studied vaccine. This is not like a vaccine. A vaccine, a traditional vaccine, you're injected with a finite amount of a protein from a, an infectious organism, and then your body attacks it and it's gone. Here we have continual exposure to the foreign protein for, we have no idea how long. It looks at least like most people complete the production of the protein within four weeks. But I was on, I think uh, Dr. Biss and I were on a, um, a Twitter space about two or three weeks ago with a young lady who said she has been doing blood tests on herself. She's been producing spike protein almost for two years. 
And I think what happened there is that the messenger RNA was reverse transcribed into DNA. Now she has that in her genetic code. I, I can't imagine that a messenger RNA molecule would survive for um, upwards of two years. So anyway, that's terrifying. Your body's not meant to be exposed to a foreign substance continually like, continually like that. Who knows what it's doing to the immune system? Actually, Dr. Biss and I know it's destroying it. So like I said a moment ago, the cells that are producing these foreign proteins are destroyed by the immune reaction because when this all this happens here, the T cells are activated, the B cells are activated, there are all sorts of chemicals that are produced in this area of the body that create an incredibly inflammatory um, arena that just really targets all those cells and creates a lot of cell death. So here's what happens with the spike protein. We're going to get into what the effects of that spike protein slipping off of the cell uh, membrane into the, into the systemic circulation. This is a representation of the spike protein is uh, composed of a couple different subunits there. When the spike protein binds to the, 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 the receptor on the cell surface that it binds to most uh, commonly is called ACE2 receptors. You've probably heard of that before. And when it binds to the ACE2 receptor, when it's just the spike protein, it actually triggers a series of events within the cell when it's actually the virus binding to the ACE2 receptor, this little um, lock and key mechanism opens up the spike protein and then the virus delivers its RNA messages into the cell and your body becomes a virus producing machine, but only for a set period of time. This is probably why natural infection is better than the vaccine because with natural infection, you only produce virus for maybe five to seven days and it's over with. Your spike protein production is over with, whereas with the vaccine, it's for... God only knows how long, like you said a few minutes ago. So what ends up happening, let me go back to that slide. When this when this uh, receptor, the ACE2 receptor is bound by the spike protein, like I said, there's a set of events that are triggered within the cell here. And what ends up happening is one of those components of the cell that I forgot to mention, the mitochondria. They're the energy producing organelles within the cell. They make every bit of energy called ATP that makes the cell work. The mitochondria malfunction when the ACE2 receptor is bound by the spike protein, leading to cell death also. So you have death by immune production and immune response to that spike protein production on the cell. And you've got cell death because the spike protein is triggering a lack of capability for the cells to make energy. And one of the areas we saw this happening first after the vaccines were released onto humanity, unfortunately, is there were a lot of vascular injuries occurring. And this is the immediate side effect of the vaccines. What happens is when that spike protein gets into the bloodstream, it injures the cells that line the blood vessels and that triggers clotting mechanisms. That's where we saw enormous clots uh, from people. I've, I've, I should have put a picture of this one clot that I've got in my phone here. It's an entire cast of the entire pulmonary arterial tree Jeez. that was removed from a physician here in uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, who got himself a Moderna booster before Moderna, Moderna boosters were ever recommended. I'll see if I can pull it up real quick here on my phone. Jeez. I don't want to delay things too much, but this is this is really impressive to see this clot. It is, uh, I cannot believe this, this person survived. Here we go. And I think it's important too. Oh yeah, that's God. the arterial, that's the arterial system. But normally when somebody has a clot, it's in the venous system. So this right. was causing arterial injury, which is concerning. Yeah, Kim and Kim and I have. I mean, I've 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 never seen an arterial clot in my entire career in 28 years with residency, 32 years. I have never seen a patient with an arterial clot. And actually, 
one of my friends who's an interventional cardiologist who's really fearful of speaking out about what he's been pulling out of people, he sent me a bunch of these pictures almost exclusively, they're all arterial clots. And the reason it's so uncommon for arterial clots to occur is because there's rapid blood flow through the arteries. It, it, when, when clots typically form, it requires some element of stagnation of the blood flow. And that happens more commonly in the, ve in the venous system or in the veins, whereas in the arteries, things are flowing very quickly. So we've got the injury of the, of the lining of the blood vessel triggering platelet activation, all these proteins come in and start to block off that area. And when it's an enormous region, you get clots forming. Then it just becomes a cascade of events, a domino effect hey, of, of hey, injury. Dan, hey, Dan, could you could you stop sharing for a second and hold that picture back up? Because anybody watching only saw a really tiny image on the far right side. Oh, I'm side. sorry. Sure. No, I just, wanted, just so everyone can see, if you, if you could stop sharing the PowerPoint real quick. So your face will get oh, bigger. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then it showed again. Good Lord in heaven. That's the entire pulmonary arterial tree, and that clot came out intact. Oh, my God. Which is very uncommon. Typically, these, these are not composed of the typical um, fibrous or proteinaceous elements because normally these fragment when they're removed. They're, there's like nothing a, I've seen. It looks seen. like I, a giant alien, like, like red pepper. <laughs> yeah, this person also had a clot extending from the dorsalis pedis artery in the in the leg that's in the ankle area all the way up the leg into the hip into the proximal How femoral artery so two clots how'd they survive uh just this person was an athlete um so probably had a lot of okay. uh, collateral vessels that that just basically allowed this person to survive it's it's impressive <laughs> i've never seen anything like that good, in my life nor good. nor has my friend who pulled it out of this person good that's Lord. why he sent me the picture all right all right yeah all right go back to sharing that was that was okay enough. that was enough of that <laughs> yeah great great thank you let's see all right now i think i've got to go back to slideshow okay there we go so another thing we've seen too kim i don't know if you've heard of this i have three people that I know who have had carotid artery dissections. I've never seen a person with a carotid artery dissection before without any, without any predisposing risk factors, meaning they don't have hypertension, neck trauma, anything like that. Um, that's where the lining of the blood vessel separates from the structures that give the vessel its, its um, support and integrity. And when that happens, basically the whole vessel is blocked off. One of the three died. One has malignant hypertension now, and the other one survived also. So one of the three people died. One of them was a postpartum nurse that I work with. She'd been out for months, and I thought maybe she retired without announcing it. And I saw her come back about six months ago and asked her how she was doing. And she just kind of said, oh, yeah, I'm doing fine. I got pretty sick for a while there. I had a carotid artery dissection. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. Now she's got headaches and all kinds of stuff. So it's it's terrifying what's going on. Um, so that's the... Uh, uh, vascular injury. And this is, this is the, the saddest thing about this is this was documented in the literature just as the vaccines were being released into the public consumption. And, you know, when, when an article appears in, in the literature, it's been around for a while. This article was published in March of 2021. So the information was around for months prior to this. And this was the article that showed that cascade of events that injure the mitochondria. Um, there's another article here that creates uh, that uh, identifies really terrifying outcomes with the vaccines in human lung tissue in the petri dish. Um, this study was done um, analyzing what was they're trying to figure out what was causing 
pulmonary arterial hypertension in people who are dying from COVID. It was a common finding they were having where the blood vessels in the lungs get really small and tight. So the blood has a very difficult time flowing through there. And what they did is they took spike protein that was composed of the spike protein produced by the vaccines, put it into the Petri dish with human lung tissue, and they identified some chemicals that actually, once again, caused this um, uh, series of events called cell signaling that caused the entire population of cells, especially the vascular cells, the smooth muscle cells, and the tunica media, that's the tissue that surrounds the lining of the blood vessel, um, they all hypertrophied or enlarged. And that was it with exposure to the protein from the vaccine. That's terrifying. I mean, we could have hundreds of thousands or millions of people walking around the, the planet that have slowly evolving pulmonary arterial hypertension. They don't even know it because it's a very subtle onset people with a little shortness of breath or a cough that develops over time. And it's completely irreversible. Um, you can't fix this once it develops. Um, the, the Strangely, the drug used for um, uh, erectile dysfunction, Cialis, can slow the progression of this because it keeps the blood vessels dilated, has a little influence like that. But eventually people succumb to this if they don't have lung transplants. And these are just some of the conclusions they came to in this in this study. Um, you can read them for yourself there. We'll need to monitor carefully the long-term consequences of COVID-19 vaccines. It has vascular effects that we don't know about. It could affect the cells systemically of the coronary vasculature, eliciting cardiovascular disease such as coronary, coronary artery disease, systemic hypertension, stroke. My brother-in-law has stroke. Three weeks after his booster, he had a vertebral artery um, thrombus form and he developed malignant hypertension thereafter. Um, so it's 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 just it's just so destructive. And here's their conclusion: We need to consider their long-term consequences carefully, especially when they are administered to otherwise healthy individuals as well as young adults and children. I mean, you this just begs the question: What? Where is the watchman? Who is watching over this, and why was this released? I mean, with all this information, the very very early stages or long before the vaccines were ever got uh, ever received their EUA. Um, and finally, I'll conclude with this. I mean, I've gone on forever. I'm sorry. No, I thought this was going to be a 10-minute no, discussion. Going. This, is, this is great. <laughs> um, I, my biggest fear when I understood how these vaccines worked with that vascular injury I was talking about where the lining of the blood vessels is injured was that that is the initiator of plaque formation in the vascular system. And when those cells die, there is an enormous release of what's called reactive oxygen species and reactive nitrogen species. And they just run through the body, destroying uh, tissue and destroying chromosomes. So that triggers platelet formation and clot formation. And that vascular injury also triggers plaque formation. It's not your cholesterol levels that are responsible for heart disease and vascular disease. It's actually inflammatory components. And there, I don't think there's anything more inflammatory that's, subje that's been subjected to all of humanity than these vaccines. And it just goes on and on, like I said, for weeks on end, your body's exposed to this. And once a plaque forms, it's like a, a cascade of events, a slow domino effect. It just continues to accumulate. Now, the good news is you can reverse those changes with a very healthy diet, exercise, and very potent antioxidant inter interventions in your diet or supplementation. And here is a sadly a study that kind of confirmed my concerns. I talked to Dr. McCullough about it. I know you've interviewed Dr. McCullough, probably the most preeminent cardiologist in the world. Dr. Maholtra is right there with him. And apparently he's thinking along the same lines here too. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to be <laughs> coupled with those guys, that's for sure. This, this is a, a study that was done out of California 
um, on something called a pulse test that analyzes people's risk factors for an acute, an acute coronary event within the next five years. They had, um, let's see, it's been a while since I've read this study. I think there are about 600 and some odd, uh, 566 patients in the study, age 28 to 97, male to female ratio was equal. Um, they had this test performed uh, before they received vaccines and the overall aggregate average risk factor for this group to have an acute coronary event within the next five years was 11%. Two to 10 weeks post-injection, because the study concluded to 10 weeks after the injections were administered, that same exact group's risk factor for an acute coronary event, which is a heart attack, basically, or a stroke, well, that would be a coronary event, um, is 25%. So that's a 227% increase risk for an acute coronary event in the next five years. And these people are just walking around not knowing anything's happening. You know, it's terrifying. Um, so that is the end of that. Um, we talked about how this all works and why. Um, there's, oh, there's the plaque formation. I don't need to go through that. I just basically explained it. Um, so anyway, I'll stop sharing. We can talk about the next topics here if you'd like. Good Lord, that was terrifying. <laughs> that was absolutely horrifying. It, yeah, it's, a, it's just, um, you know... It, it's it's hard for me to comprehend how these apparently brilliant minds could possibly overlook any of the mechanisms of action and, and the effects. I mean, I knew this based upon my knowledge of immunology that I, I acquired in 1985 in undergrad in my immunology course that I took over the winter term. I mean, we know a lot more about the immune system now, but I knew all that was going to happen. It, it, it just boggles my mind. It almost makes you wonder, is there some ulterior motive here, you know? Um, well, at a certain point, you have to conclude they knew exactly that's what it was. Now, is their intention to destroy a population, or is it just, we know it's going to happen, we don't care, we want money? Both of which I think are equally plausible. But it doesn't, I don't think they can claim incompetence. No, no, they, there's there's no level of human incompetence that can explain this. I mean, it's 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 there, and no no dere, no dereliction of duty that explains it. I mean, and I I I uh, you know basically think you're right on the money there. When you what I what I think is when you put all the circumstantial and direct evidence into a funnel, and let it circle around and spill out at the bottom, you can only come to that conclusion that you just mentioned. I mean, it, you hate to talk like that because it sounds conspiratorial, but I mean, look at what they're doing. There's They've seen the injuries. They can't not know what we know, which we're going to talk about here. And they still are pursuing recommendations of this to people. <laughs> now it's like every three to six months. Have you ever heard of anything so silly? Who's going to line up for a shot every three to six months? There are some people that are, um, sadly. No, it's, it's either. And I've stayed away from that topic for a long time so as to remain some to retain some sort of credibility. But at, at the end of the day, it comes down to is it either some sort of population control is it some sort of mass guiding of evolution? Like if you were a dog trainer or something and you want to breed a certain, I, I don't, I'm just, I'm just trying to think outside the box. What else would you want to do with this? Or it's, do you want to create a population of perpetually sick people that basically need constant shots in order to stay safe and stay alive? And those shots are controlled by the government. And thus it's the ultimate government dependence. It's, it's one of these things. It's not, it's not incompetence. These people aren't stupid. And I, I have a hard time thinking it's just for money because I've joked about this before. They figured out the money scam a while ago. It's go start a war. 
Like we've been doing that. We've been doing that bullshit for 150 years. Hey, look, they need freedom. Go bomb them. We got to build some plant. All right, that's as old as Smedley Butler back into the 1930s. General MacArthur said in the 40s, like, we'll always have a boogeyman. So to me, I can't really roll back or I can't really lean back on just the monetary explanation. It seems, obviously speaking for myself and obviously all postulating, but it seems like there's something else going on. And, you know, it's hard to conclude what, and if you do conclude it, it makes you sound crazy. But, you know, if you're doing a multiple choice answer, none of the other answers are making sense, <laughs> right? You go, you go, I'm only feeling 50% sure, but it seems like they're trying to do this. Like, I don't, I don't know what else it would be. I really don't. And it sucks because it makes you sound crazy when you reach that conclusion. But what other conclusion is there? Yeah, I, I, I became very I became very suspicious when the masks were being required because I had seen on the CDC's own website that they had studies demonstrating that the flu uh, virus was not prevented by masks. It's the same method of transmission. And then when they started telling people like myself and Dr. Biss who had had COVID, you need to get the vaccine. I knew that. I knew that was not true because no human has ever created something that supersedes or outperforms God's natural immunity. When you're exposed to an infectious agent and you survive it, there's nothing we've ever made that that exceeds the, the potential and capabilities of God's immune system. It, it 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 doesn't exist. It's never happened before. And that 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 there to me was a marker. And, Something's uh, going on here. And that line was said by none other than Anthony Fauci, I believe, in the eighties, you know. If you right. there's nothing like full immunity. If you have the flu, there's nothing like full immunity. So why right. are they still pushing for it after full immunity? Yeah. To make money? Sure. Like I I, I could take that. But the worldwide psychological campaign, something's not adding up. And I don't know. I mean, I also don't know how rationally I can speak. I did start the show by saying I had a mental breakdown and ended up in a hospital. So maybe my evidence shouldn't be taken with a, with any weight to it. But um, uh, Dr. Biss, your thoughts on all of this? As I rudely am going to go use the restroom, I'll be back in 30 seconds. You haven't said anything, so now you have to say something. <laughs> He's so funny. <laughs> you know, I, and the whole concept behind vaccines for respiratory infections just don't make sense anyway, right? Because they start up here, which is a completely different part of the immune system. That's our IgA. And there's so many other components to the immune system. And all they all they try to find is antibody, antibody, antibody. And that's not really the predominant part of our immune system so they don't make sense anyway yeah that's a that's a phenomenal point i didn't even think of bringing that up yeah it's called the innate immune system when you're exposed to the respiratory viruses the first line of defense is the lining of your nasal and oral cavities in your throat because that's where they enter the body a little bit through the eyes potentially <laughs> you know it was kind of funny uh kim our hospital required eye protection at one point if you were in the hospital seeing patients so one day this is how crazy everything got. We used to have somebody at the front of the hospital, any point of entry, they were taking your temperature. I literally walked into the hospital with my ski goggles on and a mask on, and nobody looked at me twice. Oh, God. It's amazing. I had my amber-colored ski goggles on, big old bug-eye things. Nobody even looked at me twice. I was just trying to make you know light of the whole situation. It's just ridiculous. But anyway, 
Yeah, with the uh, innate immune system, and apparently there is some harm that's uh, that's occurring to the innate immune system from these vaccines. It's really complex immunology. It's difficult to explain. I can't even un- can't can't tell you that I have a full understanding of the elements that interact there. But it's uh, it's 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 almost as if you're you're breaking down the system to allow things to crack in a little bit more easily with the with the vaccine, the way it affects things. Yeah, vaccine induced AIDS, basically. Right. Yep. That's the, that's the term VADES. Well, what I had next on the outline for us was just talking about your experience about COVID and what, what well, first off, what we are seeing as OBGYNs in our own practices and uh, your particular experiences. I actually made a little slide of your data that you sent to Jessica Rose. So just, just one of the slides, I don't have access to them all, but we can talk about that too. Yeah. Well, before we show that slide, I think I should just bring up the fact that you know, initially when the pandemic came about, you know, uh, pregnant women were scared because it was being said that if they were to get this respiratory virus, they weren't going to do well because they're pregnant. And we've always been sold that uh, with regards to the seasonal influenza infection, you know, pregnant women, because of all the cardiopulmonary changes and other changes in their systems, they're not going to do well if they get a respiratory virus. And I will tell you, if you include my residency training and private practice of almost 30 years, I've probably been involved in 8,000 pregnancies by this point. I've never had a pregnant woman die of the flu. I mean, they can get sick and I'm sure some women have, but it's not to the extent that would essentially warrant, you know, recommending a flu vaccine to all our pregnant women and especially the last four years, if you look on the CDC website, they say the flu vaccine's what, like 16% effective. So it's ridiculous anyway. Yeah. But that was the rationale to kind of push these shots for COVID onto our pregnant population. But I wanted the audience to be aware of a study that came out in May of 2022 by Dr. Beth Pinellis, P-I-N-E-L. ES. She's a maternal fetal medicine or high-risk OBGYN outside of Houston. And she was collecting data from April of 2020 to May of 2021. So this goes to the point Dr. McDyer made where her study essentially ended in May of 2021, but did not get published for a whole year later. She compared women who were pregnant and non that were admitted to the hospital with COVID and showed with statistical significance that pregnant women were less likely to end up on a ventilator or die when compared to a non-pregnant woman. And that would have been great information to have a year prior because that may have allowed for the recommendations for these injections to not have been made. Um, I will say in my private practice, you know, not that uh, big. I mean, she studied almost 40,000 people. I have a cohort of 275 in, in 2020, and not one of our pregnant patients ended up in the hospital sick with COVID uh, to where they would have required ventilation um, support. Um, they uh, may have been admitted for observation, but were ultimately sent home, um, and they did well. So that, you know, that was my experience. We didn't in the three years of the pandemic, uh, we probably had about 900 total deliveries and only one patient ended up in the hospital on a ventilator with COVID. And that was in August of 2021. And she had a pretty significant comorbidity of being morbidly obese. 
Um, but despite being put on a ventilator and being given remdesivir, she survived. <laughs> and the baby and the mom ultimately did well, but she was the only patient. And I have a very diverse socioeconomic and ethnic based practice. I don't have a superior healthy group of people. So, you know, that's been my experience. I'm sure Dan, uh, your experience was probably similar with regards to that. So that should be a little bit of reassurance for our pregnant moms out there that they, you know, we've always been told they're immune compromised, but I would argue it's probably the opposite because for the most part, our patients are very healthy. They don't, they're not sickly the whole time they're pregnant, you know? So I think that actually it's the opposite. Um, but in any event, what I had seen, I don't know if Dan, you want to share, cause I'm an idiot when it comes to screen sharing. <laughs> oh yeah. Let me pull Jessica that up real quick. Wrote, do you have her sub stack or just, I have just that one bar chart study that showed yeah, how your births went. Yeah. So I started collecting my data. Um, I, it was brought to my attention in November of 2021 by one of my staff members that in that month of November, uh, we had had a really significant number of miscarriages. And you have to understand in an obstetric practice, when you have other providers in the group, you're not seeing every single OB patient every day. You're not seeing the woman who's your GYN patient that came in seven weeks pregnant and miscarried. Um, you know, so I wouldn't know if my partner had that data. So I wasn't, you know, seeing this, but my staff member said, yeah, we had eight miscarriages, which for my practice is pretty high because we would maybe see 30 newly pregnant patients a month. And the accepted miscarriage rate, well, not so much to the patient acceptable, but the rate that's been quoted in our textbooks and in the literature is 10 to 15%. And that is so not true. I mean, clinically, I've never had a miscarriage rate that high. And I think there's been a new study that's come out by NAERT, N-A-E-R-T. I think that's the one, Dan, where the, the miscarriage rate's probably about 6%. Um, so in 2020, uh, when I uh, tabulated all our miscarriages, um, from month to month, the average miscarriage rate in my practice was 4%. And then um, when we went into the year 2021, my practice miscarriage rate went up by 100%. It went up to, uh, on average, 7 to 8% per month. And I noticed there was a slight uptick in the trend towards the latter portion of the year. Um, and in 2022, and this is only data collected up to November of that year, because that's when I sent my data to Jessica, um, the miscarriage rate on average month to month doubled again to 15%. And in December of 2022, my miscarriage rate was 25%. We had 40 newly registered patients and 13 of them had a pregnancy loss. And so far in this year, in January and February, we've had a low number of newly pregnant entries. So that may, that's what the blue bars are demonstrating is the newly registered patients have gone down from year to year, which probably is resulting from infertility. Um, but in January and February of this year, the miscarriage rate in my practice has been 15 and then 20% so far. 
Um, I will tell you uh, the state of Florida, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but according to the CDC site, I believe 65 to 70% of Floridians received at least the first two injections. And then it went down uh, slowly from the third to the fourth and then to the bivalent booster. Um, our pregnancy population in my practice is very similar. 60% um, of the pregnant patients, when I looked at everybody in our pregnancy cohort from 2022, 60% of them had received at least two injections. And a lot of them had COVID too, uh, after they had been uh, vaccinated or injected. They're not really vaccines. But. So anyway, this is a pretty stunning, this is like the first picture on Jessica Rose's Substack. She published this in November of 2022. And that just shows the orange is the miscarriages and the blue is the number of uh, newly registered, you know, first trimester pregnant patients. I don't think this is unique to me either because there's been a lot of people um, on Substack have been publishing data from around the world showing that, you know, globally the birth rate is down. Um, the United States is not very forthcoming with that information, but we can get that information out of Israel, Europe, Australia, and some of the now um, Asian or uh, Polynesian countries. It's coming out. I read a Substack yesterday on that showing that the birth rate is down. I believe 2021 was the first year in a long time where the death rate, global death rate actually exceeded the birth rate. And I'm sure that's gonna be the same for 2022. So, and the, and the other concern here too is, uh, you know, women are having infertility, but we know that these vaccines cross through the placenta. We know that it's in breast milk. Um, we know that it crosses through it, the placenta. And if there's a female fetus and these products get into the fetus and Dr. McDyer showed how the ovaries uh, suck up the lipid nanoparticles because they're lipophilic, they like fat. Um, what does that mean for a female fetus who at 20 weeks of gestation has made all the eggs she's ever gonna have in her lifetime? Uh, and we won't really know until she's, you know, maybe 10 to 12 years of age and she's supposed to get her periods and she's not getting her periods. So this could be a multi-generational issue uh, with fertility um, and we just don't know what we don't know. It's pretty sad. Dr. McDyer. Yeah, it's, it's terrifying uh, to think about the, the generational effects. It, it wouldn't be, you know, the first time this has happened. I'm not sure if the listeners or viewers are familiar with a drug called diethylstilbestrol or DES, but it was a drug that was administered to pregnant women, um, probably 60s through the 70s. Um, and the adverse so effects of it were not noted for a good 15 to 20 years after the initiation of use of that in pregnancy. I believe it was used to help prevent preterm labor or miscarriages. And the adverse outcome was a very rare cancer of the cervix called clear cell carcinoma um, that occurred about 200 to 400% more often in women, females who were exposed to the drug in utero. And we're, and we're seeing now there's some evidence arising uh, that both male and females who were exposed to that in utero are passing on a similar risk to their generation. 
So there's something that's changed genetically with the exposure to the DES. And here we're talking about a genetic injection. And this is this is what really bothers both myself and, and Kim is that never in human history have we administered an experimental medication to a pregnant woman. Never happened. And and like she just said a moment ago, my 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 experience with COVID and pregnancy mirrors hers. I think we have a little bit lower vaccine rate in my patient population, but I I had no patients hospitalized with COVID. I treated dozens and dozens of them early with you know the uh, mixed cocktail of hydroxychloroquine and nutrients and other pharmaceutical agents that were necessary based upon the patient's symptoms that they presented with. Um, I don't even think I had one that ever showed up to an ER. I just I just told my patients when they came in for their new OB visit that you know if you get COVID please call me immediately because I need to get treat get get you treated within the first five days if possible when the component of the infection called viral replication is occurring you want to inhibit the virus amount the amount of virus the patient is exposed to you so you inhibit that with attacking it with a hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin and then the other nutrients. Uh, or antibiotics and other elements that we were, we've been using to treat COVID early in pregnancy it works. It, it, there are dozens and dozens of studies to indicate that. So why, with an effective early treatment, would we vaccinate pregnant women with this? It makes no sense. We've never done it before. Um, and uh, you know what? This might be a good time to show you this little uh, piece that I have here that is just, oh, my slides are kind of stuck. It's just, it's a shocker as to how, here it is, as to how coerced we physicians were being OBGYNs by the leadership, quote unquote, of OBGYN. This was in an article in the American Journal. It's kind of crushed up. The American Journal of OBGYN came out in uh, June of 2022. But this article called Reversing Physician Hesitancy to Recommend COVID-19 Vaccination for Pregnant Patients it was originally written and submitted in October of 2021. So maybe like nine months into the vaccination program or 10 months. And, and look at what they have, they're telling us doctors to do. It's basically they're commanding us like little children to comply with their recommendations. Physician hesitancy is said to occur when physicians do not recommend COVID-19 vaccination. By the way, they've never addressed vaccine hesitancy in, in physician populations before, because there are doctors out there that don't recommend vaccines to their patients prior to the COVID vaccines. It's contributing to, it's a contributing factor to the low vaccination rate for COVID-19 in pregnant women. Physician hesitancy has become a major unaddressed problem with regard to the quality and safety of obstetrical care. We identify three root causes of physician hesitancy and describe how professional ethics in obstetrics should guide in reversing these root causes. These are, they are clinical misapplications of key components of professionally responsible obstetrical practice, therapeutic nihilism, shared decision-making, and respect for patient autonomy. Therapeutic nihilism directs the obstetrician to avoid any clinical interventions during pregnancy prevent, to prevent teratogenic effects that might be unknown. Therapeutic nihilism is misapplied when there is a documented net clinical benefit with no evidence of clinical harm. Now, in October of 2021, how could any obstetrician tell me, Dr. Biss, or any patient or any patient on the population of the earth that these vaccines were harmless? It's impossible. We have no idea the ramifications of this medication being exposed to fetuses 
takes five to 10 to 20 years. As I told you, DES took 20 years to identify the risk factor. How could they not understand that? I mean, this is, this is, I mean, I, it's gaslighting. Tommy, like, it, like you said a moment ago, you have, it really begs the question. It draws you down to, into deep, dark holes yeah. about what's going on here. Shared decision-making directs the obstetrician not only offer, but recommend clinical management. Shared, shared decision-making plays a major role when there's uncertainty in clinical judgment, but is misapplied when it becomes a universal model. It does not apply when there's a net clinical benefit. Once again, how do they know that? I mean, like Dr. Biss said, Dr. Pinellas showed there's, you should get pregnant if you want to avoid adverse <laughs> COVID effects, right? It protects you from severe illness. Oh my goodness. It just gets sillier and sillier. Um, it does not apply to net clinical benefit. When there is a net clinical benefit, clinical management should be recommended, not simply offered. The ethical principle respect of respect for patient autonomy plays an indispensable role in decision-making with patients. It is misapplied when it's assumed that respect for autonomy requires physicians not to make recommendations and to defer to and implement patient decisions without exception. Now that right there is telling the patients, hey, you're not capable of thinking for yourself. This person standing in front of you knows a whole lot more about how you should treat your body than you do. Now, that's absolutely contradictory to everything they have told us prior to COVID. It, it, it's, it's amazing. I My mind is blown by this entire statement. There is evidence that the obstetrician's recommendations about the management of pregnancy are the most important factor in a pregnant woman's decision-making. That makes sense. Simply deferring to the patient's decision makes for misapplied respect for patient autonomy. Unbelievable. I mean, I, this, this, this is just complete trash. Obstetricians must end physician hesitancy about COVID-19 vaccination of pregnant women by reversing these three root causes of physician hesitancy. By the way, my wife says, what exactly are root causes? I hate that term. So stupid. Um, reversing the root causes of physician hesitancy is an urgent matter of patient safety. The longer physician hesitancy continues and the longer the low vaccine acceptance rate of pregnant women lasts, Preventable, severe, serious diseases, deaths of pregnant women, intensive care unit admissions, stillbirths, and other maternal and fetal complications of unvaccinated women will continue to occur. Physician hesitancy should not be permitted to influence the response to future pandemics. Uh-oh. Is there something future. in the works? Yeah, future. Yeah. So anyway, I just, I thought that was, it's not even comical. It's, 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 it's we're being treated as children and it's so... Um, off base and so uh, inaccurate and defies everything we've ever been taught as to how to take care of patients. Amazing. So uh, let's see. Uh, you have any comments there, Dr. Biss or Tommy? I'm kind of in awe. Physician hesitancy, uh, uh, nihilism, shared decision-making, like, they are, they are, they are casting decrees from on high about you, little, about you little peons not carrying out the work correctly. That's exactly what I felt when I read it. It's just amazing. I've never been treated in such a fashion. No, it, <laughs> I don't know. I don't really have anything to add to that. I, I don't, I don't know what to say to that. Dr. Yeah, Bush. I kind of, I wanted to read about, um, so there's a committee opinion uh, that's printed in our green journal, with, which is the journal of OBGYN, um, 
that we get monthly. And it's Committee Opinion 390 was printed in December 2007, titled Ethical Decision-Making in Obstetrics and Gynecology. And on pages five through six, it addresses the concept of informed consent, which I would argue that none of our patients, uh, pregnant patients, or gynecologic for that matter, received with regards to the rollout of the vaccines, but basically says one of the most important elements of informed consent is the patient's capacity to understand the nature of her condition and the benefits and risks of the treatment that is recommended as well as those of alternative treatments. Voluntariness, which is the patient's freedom to choose among alternatives, is also an important element of informed consent which should be free from coercion, pressure, or undue influence. And there's so many, you know, OBGYNs out there that are forcing their patients to get these shots. Some won't even see their patients unless they've been vaccinated. It's crazy. But I've always practiced, you know, there's three options for any of my patients. There's medical, there's surgical, and the third is the, always the patient doesn't have to do anything. That's her right. And then the fourth, I would say, would always be if they want to get a second opinion. But it's not, it's never what I say goes, and that's your only option. You know, and these patients were never told that they had, you know, treatments available. I was not, unlike Dan, I was not allowed to prescribe um, anything for my COVID patients, even though we had lupus and rheumatoid arthritis patients on hydroxychloroquine for their whole pregnancy mm -hmm. at the same dose we would use for five days for COVID, but somehow that's dangerous, you know? Um, certainly not ivermectin. Our chief medical officer actually called ivermectin horse dewormer. Um, the same chief medical officer who told us all in an email last October, oh goody, the bivalent vaccine is available for your pregnant patients. And while they're at the pharmacy, they can get the flu vaccine at the same time. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> this is what well, I'm dealing with, and most people are too. It's crazy. Yeah, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to treat patients, but I, I had trouble. That's for sure. I had several pharmacists tell me I was killing people when I when I really tried to get ivermectin from. I finally found some compounding pharmacies that were more than happy and willing to you know create the the capsules for the patients. Uh, but I was just shocked. I've never. I mean, I've never had a pharmacist say something like that to me. I've had some question the the therapeutic interventions well in front of the patients, which is kind of terrifying. They don't practice medicine, but sometimes they think they do. Um, and I, I believe there's a safety net. I'm not perfect. Uh, I, I can, I'm not infallible, but um, they should call me first before they tell the patients your doctor's trying to kill you or something like that. So um, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't easy in the very beginning. It's become easier now because at least in Florida, because they've made it illegal for the pharmacists, or at least, uh, I don't know if it's illegal, but they can't deny the medications we prescribe uh, for our patients. So, and I, by the way, um, as far as the miscarriages go, I personally haven't seen the same degree that Dr. Biss has of miscarriages, but I don't see all of the new OB patients in my practice. My partner, he just does outpatient gynecology and office work, uh, no surgeries or deliveries. So he ends up seeing the bulk of the new OB patients for their kind of what we call the amenory visit when they're just uh, establishing the fact that they're pregnant. And just on Tuesday, he came up to me and said, Dan, 
for every living pregnancy I'm seeing, I'm seeing a blighted ovum or what's, what's, that's also considered an, an inevitable miscarriage. So a miscarriage is going to happen. So he's, he's about a 50% rate right now. I'm going to pull the data. I've got to have our, our, our team do that for me. Uh, but it's, it's definitely increased. He's noticed a significant increase. The thing that I've noticed, particularly in my practice is the menstrual disorders, specifically in the postmenopausal patient, the women who don't menstruate anymore, um, I went back and looked at the average number of patients I saw annually for postmenopausal bleeding between 2016 and 2020, and then compared that to 2021 and 2022. And in 2021, I saw 193% increase in postmenopausal bleeding patients compared to the preceding five years. And in 2022, it was 156% increase. And I, I'd gotten this sense that I was seeing more bleeding, but my medical assistant who's worked in our practice for 36 years had come up to me and said, Dr. McDyer, what is going on? I've never seen more bleeding patients in my entire life. So I ran the numbers. I was, she, she's right. The, the corresponding issues with premenopausal patients is not quite to the same degree. It's 25% increase in 2021 and a 15% increase in 2022. And my hypothesis there is I attribute that to the fact that the older patient population, which are the menopausal patients, they were probably a lot more likely to receive the vaccine than the younger patients. Um, but we we are seeing, I just, I'm, I'm part of a group, a research group called My Cycle Story. And this group uh, basically we submitted about an 80 question survey to 6,000 and some odd women. Actually, I have a slide of it here. Let me see if I can pull that up. I'm full of slides because they kind of keep me on track. Oh, good. So we had a, a group of about 6,049 women. This is the study, COVID-19 and the surge in decidual cast shedding. Um, the vast majority of these women were not uh, vaccinated. Uh, they were uh, these surveys were distributed via social media between May of 2021 and December of 2021. So it was right at the peak of the vaccination uh, program. And we saw a huge number of patients who were complaining of something called decidual cast shedding. And what that is, is a decidual cast is basically the entire uh, cavity of the uterus, that the tissue that lines it is all passed at once. It's a very painful event. Um, I've seen it. I had, I think I had one or two patients that had it during, after the vaccines were released. Um, in general, it, it happens when people have a lot of progesterone in their system that just suddenly shuts down, like with a tubal pregnancy, sometimes with a miscarriage, you might see that. But when we went back in the literature, as we do, as we were doing the study, there were only about, I mean, I, I want to say there were less than 50 reported cases of decidual cast shedding in the preceding uh, 100 years, 110 years. And what we found is that we had 292 women out of the 6,000 that reported decidual cast shedding. Um, and then also when we looked at the Google metadata analytics, there was a significant increase in people searching the term decidual cast shedding in the months of April, May, and June of 2021. So there was something happening um, definitely. Now, there were some cursory studies performed at academic institutions that said, "Yeah, don't worry about it. You know, it's just it's, it's some irregular bleeding that it goes away." Um, so it, it's it's absolutely absurd uh, that there's nothing happening here. I mean, the question is begged: Why is this happening? We don't know. We're trying to figure it out. 
Dr. Biss and I are involved in another research group. We're actually trying to get to the heart and soul of what underlies these bleeding problems with tissue examinations uh, obtained from women who are having these bleeding disorders. But that's when women have a regular menstrual cycle, that's a pretty good indication of, of good health. And something's disrupting that significantly. Um, and it, it's it's terrifying. I mean, is it something in the ovaries? Is it something happening in the brain and the communication between the brain and the ovaries? They call it the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. It's a very complex feedback loop of hormones circulating through the bloodstream and nerve neurologic signals going back and forth between, between the pituitary gland and the hypothalamus. So is it there? Is it in the ovaries? Is it something happening in the uterus? We don't know, but Dr. Biss and I have seen another bleeding problem also called postpartum hemorrhages, which are heavy bleeding episodes uh, following the delivery of a pregnancy. Most of them happen within the first two hours after, after delivery, but it's within the first 24 hours. And it's any, a blood loss defined as anywhere between a half a liter and a liter of blood. Um, I have noticed, and the nurses in my labor delivery have commented many times to me how often we're seeing this. Um, I actually had a patient who ended up having to have a, a what's called a cesarean hysterectomy. She had to be taken back to the operating room to remove her uterus because she had such uncontrollable bleeding after the delivery. She had a cesarean section for her delivery. And then the nurses told me, I, I wasn't there, I was on vacation when this happened, unfortunately. Um, but uh, they said they'd never seen a uterus so incapable of contracting. That's how the bleeding stopped after delivery. The uterus contracts really hard to compress all of the exposed blood vessels where the placenta was formerly implanted in the uterus. So it's a constrictive event to keep the bleeding under control. And this uterus would not contract with multiple medications being administered. They put a balloon in her uterus to kind of what we call tamponade the vessels or compress them from an internal device. Nothing would work. Um, she, uh, she survived, but she got a ton of blood products. Um, and it turns out um, before I saw her as a new OB patient, she got a vaccine set so she could go on a cruise to Mexico. And that's one of the saddest things I see is people do this without thinking there's any potential consequence of their action just to travel somewhere or to, you know, well, understandably and maintain their job. Actually, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is it's had direct effects on my family, not just my patients. My son lost two jobs because of this. He already had COVID. His uh, employer, he's a, he's a mechanical engineer, his employer required the vaccine to keep their employment. My son wrote about a four or five page letter to his CEO documenting why he should not get the vaccine. He did it himself. He did literature searches himself. He had me help him with a few medical pieces of terminology and whatnot. Literally everything he wrote in that letter to the CEO has come to, to, come to pass. Fertility issues, bleeding problems, heart anomalies, myocarditis, all those things. Um, thank God he didn't get it. You know, he's 6'5", 195 pounds of pure muscle. I knew, he didn't even know he had COVID when he had it. He just <laughs> lost his, his smell. That's how he knew something was going on. Um, so it was absurd, you know, and, and I really um, sympathize with the patients who felt they were coerced. But, you know, at some point you've got to take a stand against this tyranny. I, I was prepared to quit practicing medicine. I never thought those words would pass my lips. But um, I, I knew there was something wrong. And in November of last, well, in November of 2021, the vaccine mandate came down in my hospital. Um, they were the, one of the last ones around that wanted to do it. I don't think, by the way, a uh, little uh, disclaimer, my opinions are not those of my practice sure. or my hospital. <laughs> Get that out of the way. That, that but anyway, everyone on this podcast ever. I just, it's a blanket rule. Whatever they say on yeah. here does not represent their job. 
Yes, just my, my personal experiences and that of the literature. But um, I was prepared to quit practicing medicine if I didn't get my religious exemption from the hospital because I couldn't, if I if I didn't have hospital privilege, I couldn't do deliveries or surgery anymore. I mean, I guess I, I plan to try to do outpatient GYN, but that's really difficult to make that work financially. So I was prepared to just shut down. You know, I figured, you know what? <clears throat> I live in America, I think. Um, <laughs> I have those values anyway. And God gave me a brain. I'll just go do something else. I, I, I'm not going to subject myself to that, nor will I be subjected to the threats from the state medical boards, the, the Federation of State Medical Boards, or the American Board of OBGYN that are telling me if I share COVID misinformation, whatever that is, I mean, I know that's defying the narrative, um, I could lose my license or my board certification. You know what? If it comes to that, I'll fight it tooth and nail. But um, I will not put myself in a position where I can't be honest and transparent with my patients and give them proper guidance. And like Dr. Biss said, I'm an open book. I mean, I never, ever tell a patient what they have to do. And I'm not offended when they don't follow my recommendations. I'm, I'm actually happy if they could get a second opinion because they need to get themselves to the point where they're confident enough to do to themselves what needs to be done to make themselves get better. You know, that's part of the whole treatment process is confidence in what you're doing to yourself. The psychology plays a huge role in it. So anyway, I, I would not put myself in that situation where I where I had somebody else forcing me to tell patients something that I know for a fact. These do not lie to me. I know what's going on. Amen. Yeah, that's uh, Dr. Biss. Yeah, and, you know, just to kind of um, enforce the fact that a lot of what we're seeing now, we weren't seeing in 2020. So it has to be, or not to the same extent anyway, it has to be more than just the spike protein. Um, it has to be other components in the vaccine, which probably the lipid nanoparticles, but maybe something else. I mean... We don't even know what's in the vaccines, right? Because the package inserts are blank, but uh, definitely uh, something else is involved. And that study that he alluded to that we're working on is actually with Dr. Brian Cole. So he's gonna get um, the tissue blocks and uh, he has the ability to stain for spike protein. And if the spike protein is there without another element, which is called the nucleocapsid, which that would indicate that the spike is there because of an infection. If the nucleocapsid is not present, then the only way a woman could have the spike is if either she were vaccinated or shedding if she was near somebody that had been recently vaccinated. <laughs> Dr. McDyer uh, and Dr. Thorpe and others had published a paper uh, with my cycle story showing, you know, the abnormal menses, but a huge majority of those women had not been vaccinated. They had just been around other women that had been vaccinated. So that opens up a whole other can of worms because that's going to be the Morgan and Morgan for the people lawsuits down the way, because if you didn't choose to get the vaccine, but you had something bad happen to you because you were around other people that were vaccinated. I mean, that's, you know yeah what would even happen then if like vaccine shedding proved to be a thing it actually is if you go down the vaccine rabbit hole i mean there there is other traditional vaccines you can shed through what's called an exosome right dan Mm -hmm. uh and it could come out in your breath your body fluids like for example correct me if i'm wrong dan but uh if i were to go and i don't know why i would but if i were to go get like a varicella vaccine or some sort of live vaccine, 
I wouldn't be able to go to practice and see my obstetric patients for a few days because there's the possible risk that I could, you know, transmit that to the patient. Well, how is that? <laughs> you know, so anyway, that's, that's, that's not a new concept. So what does that mean for people that are intimate with one another? You know, I mean, yeah, we know it's in the bodily fluids for sure because they've shown that in breast milk, um, and it, it, it's got to be in semen and urine and everything. Um, the, uh, the paper's not published yet. We're just in the process of writing it and editing it right now. But there's pretty strong evidence that there's something happening um, in the un unvaccinated population that's creating the, the bleeding problems. Um, we have to assume that's what it is. Um, I hope, my prayer is that it's just the spike protein because that would have kind of a limited lifespan in the body. But if it's the messenger RNA that are being excreted somehow, that's a little bit more concerning. And there was a study that just came out about three or four weeks ago. Um, I can't remember where it was, but they had done a study on hepatitis C patients. They were looking at the RNA in their bloodstream and they coincidentally noted up to the 20th day after a vaccination, that's when the study concluded that there was still detectable uh, vaccine-related messenger RNA in the patient's bloodstream. And remember, by the way, when I first started the presentation, that's not supposed to be there. It's supposed to go into the lymphatic system, right? But it's in the bloodstream. And supposedly when it's in the bloodstream, it's supposed to be degraded very rapidly. But they did something else to the messenger RNA segment. Not only did they put that nucleoside primer on one end to inhibit its degradation, but the, the messenger RNA or the RNA molecules are composed of four different nucleotides. One of those is uridine, and they replaced the naturally occurring uridine with something called pseudouridine, which our body actually makes a very, very small amount of it. But they put pseudouridine in the uh, message, and that also inhibits the degradation of the messenger RNA molecule. So they, and they did no studies to see how long that would last. It's, I mean, that's, that truly is one of the very first steps in the development of a new drug or a vaccine is, is pharmacokinetics, knowing how long it lasts, what the dose has to be. And then you do, you're going to do reproductive toxicity studies, genotoxicity studies. Absolutely none of that took place, none whatsoever. And that's, that's what made me in the very beginning, very, very physician hesitant about the vaccines is the, the rapidity with which they were developed. Um, because I, I mean, there's there's no accelerator that can let you see what the adverse events are going to be. We don't have a crystal ball, and uh, they ran right through that so quickly. And to to me, I thought this whole technology was brand new. But if you go back and look at all the development and through the patents and things like that, this has been going on for a long time. Um, and I was actually kind of in awe of the entire uh, technology. But uh, now I know. I mean, it is. It's amazing what we can do in terms of putting a substance into the body and tell the body to become a manufacturing machine for something like this. But it's a flawed system. Like I pointed out, basically every step along the way, it's flawed. You don't know how long it's going to last. It travels to every system in the body. The cells that produce it die because the immune system attacks them. And I think that's why we're seeing some of these autoimmune effects is because the immune system is getting a little confused by these MHC complexes all becoming anomalous. It is an autoimmune reaction. I mean, what's the definition of an autoimmune? It's where, you know, your body makes antibodies to a protein your body makes. And that's exactly True. what these 
what these vaccines are making your body do. So, yep. Yep. So I think, I think that's pretty much what we wanted to cover there with you. You have any questions for us or any, any topics you want to talk about Kim? No, poor Tommy. No, I'm kind of, I'm kind of terrified of all of this. This is. Well, no, don't be, you know why? Because you obviously are very healthy and, and anybody can make a difference for themselves. Even if they've been vaccinated, the first thing to do is stop. Do not get any more of this. And I think, you know, uh, I saw Dr. McCullough the other day saying that there's only a 10% uptake. I think it's that or 15% maybe of this new bivalent vaccine, but which by the way, I mean, you've probably mentioned this on your show before. <laughs> this, this is literally a mind blower. That was not even tested on humans. The bivalent vaccine. This sounds eight like mice. I'm making this up. It was eight mice. And I think three of the eight mice got COVID. All it showed was an increase in antibody levels. That was it. And never, never, ever in human history, do we determine a person's capability to prevent an infection by measuring an antibody level like this? I guess we do it for rubella to see if they've been exposed to it in the past, but we don't really know how well that protects them from a rubella infection. So that's all they did. That's it. I mean, and what's really terrifying too, is that every organization across the planet that that's like the FDA about a year and a half ago said, that's okay. If you don't make any major modifications to the vaccine ingredients, if you're just changing the message, the genetic message, go for it. It's all yours. We're not going to test it. The f- and there, and now, so well. yeah, now they're talking about making all the vaccines out of messenger RNA. And just guess about all the little look what, what look what happened when they modified the polio vaccine. They maimed, killed, and paralyzed thousands of children in the Philippines. The Gardasil vaccine, same thing, killed thousands of people in India young girls it's amazing absolutely mind-boggling but i think the good news is most people have either seen someone who died or got really sick from the vaccine um, or have heard about it so they're they're reluctant now that we have a uh, population hesitancy i guess that these guys here got to get on that if you got a letter to between them all like children, make them go out there and get the vaccine. Don't, don't, don't have any independent critical thinking, whatever you do. Good Lord. The other thing too, that's very inexpensive and everybody can do is intermittent fasting because that's been shown to make your body take out the trash, so to speak. So cells that aren't functioning well, or that have the spike in them, uh, can help your body to the process of autophagy get rid of them. So a 16 hour fast. So basically if you just eat in an eight hour window every day, you'll be doing that. So everybody can do that and you'll end up saving money because you'll be spending less money on food. (laughs) Although I don't know what our money is going to mean by tomorrow, right? I I hear through the grapevine, all the banks are supposed to fail. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Let's let's pray not. Let's Let's pray pray now. I'm going to the ATM in a minute, but uh, also too, Tommy, um, other things that help too, I mentioned this a few moments ago, but exercising like you do, obviously, and Kim, I know she goes to the gym a lot. Um, she's actually so dedicated. Um, this is an aside. I, I indirectly sent her a patient that was having a, a really bad miscarriage event that was mismanaged by another practice in her area. I found out it was in St. Petersburg. So I sent the patient to her. She completely threw away her afternoon plans to take care of this patient who had a pretty, pretty bad situation. So, so Dr. Biss is phenomenal. Just she has the right heart. Um, but what what you do too is exercise like you do, obviously, and then take very potent antioxidants. I, and I think 
um, eating a very clean diet, getting rid of all the pesticides and um, insecticides and things like that, and all that stuff they put in the soil, like the glyphosate. Gly- gly- what is it? Glyphosate. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to control where you get your food from, but that, that has actually been shown exercise and antioxidants has been shown to reverse the plaque formation in the vascular system. Because my biggest fear is that, you know, we've seen or are seeing the initial wave of acute events from the vaccine, but my fear is what's going to happen three, four, five years down the road after the initial wave of vaccines were acquired. Cause that's when I think we're going to start seeing, and I hope not, uh, heart attack, strokes, and peripheral vascular disease from the plaque formation. Um, that's what that study, the, the PULSE study had shown there. There was a massive increase in the risk in that patient population there. So uh, I don't think I'm off base on that. And I saw a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Malholtra expressed the same concerns. I've been saying this since the very beginning. I was just like, what What are we doing to the vascular system? It was right after I read that article that showed how there's that uh, cascade of events that damage the mitochondria and kill the vascular cells, the endothelial cells, they're called. That's that's the initiator of the plaque formation. Yeah, I mean. Bunch of good news for you, Tom. Just positive news for everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can reverse it. Yeah, you can. You can exercise, eat less, diet. Same uh, same advice as always. But uh, Dr. McDyer, Dr. Biss, thank you so much for coming on here. I'd, uh, I'd love to do it again sometime. You are a, yeah. a wealth of information, both of y'all. And uh, thank you for your time on here. Thank you for the, although terrifying, thank you for the presentation. And um, yeah, I look forward to doing it again. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Thanks. yeah. Thanks so much, Tommy. Prayer, prayers up for your health. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Dr. McDyer, Dr. Yeah. Bus, thank you so much for coming on here. Um, yeah, I'll email to you when it's up, and uh, I look forward to the next one. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Stay safe out there, Recording everybody. Stopped. God bless. Peace.